0: I'm Ben Ford. I'm Austin Letcher.
1: And I'm Alyssa Mendel.
0: And this is Chords Cast. This podcast is created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or Cords for short which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition, and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us on another episode of Cordscast. My name is Ben Forid and I'm glad to have you here. The Cords team is moving into 2019 with a full head of steam. We had a busy January uh, where we released our quarterly newsletter um, that gives you an update on things. And then we also had our second quarterly webinar. So this is a, a new series that we're starting that's um, going to serve as kind of an outreach platform but also an educational tool for folks in the rare disease community. In January, we featured Finding Your Genetic Diagnosis, and we told the story from both the patient perspective uh, with with Seth Rotberg from the Huntington's Disease Youth Organization, and we also had Rob Pyatt, um, one of our Sanford Health uh, clinical genetics lab directors, on to talk about what the clinical side of finding a genetic diagnosis looks like. Again, that's a quarterly webinar, so something that we're looking to do four times a year. Um, We'd love to hear your input and your feedback, and if you have any topics that you'd like to have covered, or if you have anyone that you'd like to have featured on that, please reach out and let us know. We're always looking for suggestions to make these sorts of things better and um, and really make sure that they fit the needs of the rare disease community as, as best as we can meet them. In February... Uh, Austin and I will be traveling to Washington, D.C. at the end of the month for the Rare Disease Week activities. Uh, We will be having a booth at the Legislative Conference on February 25th. And so if you're out in the D.C. area and you're at that event please stop by and talk to us. Uh, we might have a pair of cord sunglasses or maybe even a t-shirt to give you. Um, but we, we look forward to interacting with as many people as we possibly can that week while we're in DC. So um, please hit us up. Again, at the end of the week, On the uh, we'll be in Bethesda at the NIH's Rare Disease Day event. Um, we'll have a table there as well. So please um, reach out and, and let us know if you'd like to connect. We're always looking for an opportunity to talk to folks face-to-face. Well, in this episode of QuartzCast, Austin interviewed Sharon Rose-Neasley and Emily LaMiska from the File Syndrome Freedom. Uh, they invited their uh, physician champion, Dr. Philip Giampietro, on the line and really had a great conversation about what Clipple File Syndrome is, uh, what, you know, what does it affect, what's the current state of research, and how can people out there get involved. And you know, not to mention, (laughs) how can how can folks find us at Cords to uh, complete their disease-specific questionnaire? So, it's a great episode full of wonderful content. Uh, Please stick around and, and enjoy.
2: everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cast. Today we have with us Emily and Sharon from the Clipophile Syndrome Freedom Organization who we partner with and Dr. GM Pietro. We're going to talk to them a little bit about uh file Syndrome uh, but first Sharon, can you tell me you know, how you got started um, or how you got connected to the rare disease community in general?
1: Sure. About nine years ago, I was diagnosed with Klepophile syndrome and of course I had had it all my life. I had had some issues that are related to Klepophile syndrome, but I had no idea why I had those issues. And I started having issues and pain in my neck area and I learned that I have clepophyl syndrome and since that point I have been involved
2: Awesome. And uh, Emily, uh, same question to you. How did you get involved?
3: Um, So I was diagnosed with Coltell-Fail syndrome when I was 14. And just because of the um, shortness of my neck, because KFS basically causes the fusion of one or more vertebrae. So people often have a neck that looks much shorter, their shoulders might look a little hunched up. So as a subconscious teenager, I just wanted to know what was wrong, I didn't actually have any symptoms. Um, But KFS is degenerative. So it was when I was, I think, 24, that I first started having um, symptoms of pain. And they came on pretty suddenly and and got really severe really quickly. So at that point, you know, I started doing a lot of um, googling online to try to find some, you know, connection to other people, um, and, and started realizing that there were other people who had KFS
2: as well. Yeah, it sounds like you got involved at um, in the advocacy at a, at a young age. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your decision, Emily, to um, you know become a patient advocate and and how you got involved with Klippel File Syndrome Freedom?
3: So I'm trying to remember, and Sharon can probably help me because it was like it was a long time ago, uh, but I feel like I met Sharon in a in a message board online originally or maybe a different group at first and so we connected through that um but then i think it was now maybe like three or four years since um kfs freedom has been founded um and i also on the side um worked for the us team foundation as an advocate a role that i took on probably three years ago um but you know i was very lucky and you know thank god for the internet as a patient with a rare disease because, you know, otherwise you just would feel so alone. Um, but finding Sharon and the great work that she does was hugely helpful for me. Um, and she she is an inspiration and, um, you know, really encouraged me to get more involved.
2: So it sounds like maybe uh, Sharon did a little of recruiting, huh?
3: <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be safe to say. But, you know, the nice thing about Sharon is that she doesn't really... You know, push anybody. She just leads by example as an advocate, um, and sort of inspires people to do what they can as well. But Sharon, I feel like you might be able to better remember, like, how we connected exactly. Um, because I just feel like I'm doing my whole life, and that's probably not. Ah,
1: <laughs> it does feel like that. I believe, you know, uh, um, I was online and there was not much available. As Emily knows, there's not a lot of information. And when I was diagnosed, I was looking online for information to help my care, because as Emily said, for both of us, Clipple File Syndrome hit us quickly and um, dramatically. And so Emily and I were on a message board, It wasn't Facebook, it was before that became popular. And so we were basically just posting on a message board, and then it became obvious to me that we we needed more than a message board. We needed a place that was active and that was live, per se, that people could, in, in real time, as much as possible, interact on a new interface. And that's when I really went from, okay, I'm a patient to, okay, we
2: need to advocate for this. That's awesome. You know, I'm really interested, now that we know a little bit how um, Sharon and Emily met, I'm kind of curious how Dr. G.M. Pietro came into the picture. Uh, Phil, could you tell us a little bit of how you met Sharon and Emily and uh, what maybe give us a little bit of a background on what Clippophile syndrome is?
4: Hello. I'm a clinical geneticist and uh, I was practicing at the University of Wisconsin Madison. When I first met Sharon, she came as a patient um, to uh, have a genetic consultation. So, Klippel feel syndrome is a genetic condition and it's characterized by a triad of uh, clinical features which outwardly uh, appear as a shortened neck, low uh, posterior hairline, along with uh, fusion of the cervical vertebral elements. So um, the fusion is something that dates back to early on in development when the structures called somites, which ultimately develop into the vertebrae, uh, don't uh, develop properly and uh, separate uh, from one another. And this condition, klippel um, syndrome, can be um, an isolated condition or can be associated with other medical problems that are very uh, significant for patients, including hearing loss, vision problems, um, kidney abnormalities, heart abnormalities. And uh, as one gets older or even in younger children, this can really be associated with very uh, devastating, incapacitating pain uh, and uh, disability uh, as well. Uh, This can affect the spinal cord. um, And uh, patients with Clippelfield syndrome often require involvement of other services, particularly orthopedics, neurosurgery uh, as well. There can be other neurological consequences for Clippelfield syndrome. So back, I think we're talking maybe over 10 years ago, uh, definitely over 10 years ago, when Sharon came up to Wisconsin from Illinois and was really seeking help uh, as well to better understand how this condition happened and what other health problems she would be at risk for. Um, That's basically how she sought out the uh, help of a geneticist.
1: I just wanted to add that it was Dr. Petro that really was the first physician to tell me what other tests I should have done besides the cervical spine. So without seeing him, I would not have known to have my heart and my kidneys and so forth tested. And that is so important for our
2: patients, Sharon. That's a great thing to add. You make me think of um, something we often uh, talk to patients in the rare disease community about, and and the um, thing I'm thinking about is your diagnostic odyssey. So, you weren't diagnosed with Cephalle syndrome until you met uh, Dr. Gian Pietro. Is that correct? And how long did it take to finally get that diagnosis?
1: Well, actually, I went to, I was having pain that was relentless in my neck and head, and I went to a chiropractor in the beginning, and the chiropractor saw my x-ray and came back in the room and said, you need a specialist. And so at at that point, I went to, I both of my knees have dysplasia, and now I know that that bony deformity is related to clepopphile syndrome, but at the time I went to my knee surgeon and he diagnosed me with clepopphile syndrome, but he didn't know what, he didn't really have much information at all. So at that point, that's when I started looking for physicians who had some under some bit of knowledge about file, and that proved to be very difficult. And then I went to see Dr. Gian Petro.
4: And, and it was at that time, also, uh, well, thereafter, when uh, Sharon then uh, became involved with Clippelfield Freedom, um, and that's how I met Emily.
2: That's a great segue into my next question. Um, yeah, so Sharon and Emily. Uh, do quite a bit of work with a partner of ours, Crippophile Syndrome Freedom. Uh, Sharon, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, what you guys do, uh, what kind of activities you support, and that that sort of thing?
1: Sure. So um, Crippophile Syndrome Freedom really is a central location where our patients and families, parents, and general public can come to our site online and learn about Kleppofile syndrome, but also have a live interface. Uh, We want to make it a place where they can have support. So we have support groups, one for adult patients. I should say one also for teen patients and young adults, and one for parents of children who have a Kleppofile diagnosis. And so we offer that. We also offer a full index of information that parents and patients should be aware of as they are trying to learn about Klepophile syndrome. If they're having certain specific issues, they can come into our site and find the information as much as we can provide. Now, file syndrome is missing a lot of information that patients and parents would hope for. And so we give them what we can, and we're always posting information. We're always available. And so Emily and I um, came together. Emily really has helped with putting together a full list of questions based on what we see patients and parents asking about. And so we try to provide a full basically a full service of what our community needs. And so we're also in in that same vein, it's important to us that we find pathways to help promote research.
3: I just wanted to add that um, right now, we have over 3,500 people that like our, the KFS page, uh, and there's just hundreds of people in all these different support groups. Uh, and KFS only affects, I think it's one in 40,000 births is the, the current number. Um, and a lot of people don't know they have it, you know, like myself. They might not know for a while, or like Sharon. Um, and some people have um, not as much pain. As we've experienced. So they may go through, you know, up until their 60s or or whenever and not know they have KFS. So the fact that Sharon's created this community where all these people can connect and meet is just so wonderful um, because it is such a rare occurrence in patients.
2: So uh, maybe I'll ask you this, Emily. What are some of the most um, important outcomes uh, for? Clipophile patients to to focus on? It sounds like pain is a big issue. um, And how is the current treatment um, either lacking or, or helping?
3: Right. So as Sharon and Dr. Gianpetro talked about, one of the most important things is screening and making sure that you are checked for all the different possible abnormalities that can be associated with KFS. So even though it is primarily a spine and musculoskeletal problem, it can affect all sorts of things. Um, So making sure that you have your whole spine imaged, not just the neck, Um, making sure you get tests of those different organs. Um, And then it's really about sort of monitoring for any changes. So um, for myself, that meant getting x-rays annually for a while. Um, Now it's every few years or so because I seem to be fairly stable. But then it really does become a game of just, you know, managing symptoms and managing pain and treating pain, Uh, and that can look, you know, very different for each person. So, you know, some people might pursue stabilization surgeries and have more vertebrae fused or have hardware put in. Um, For other people, it could mean taking pain medication. Uh, It could mean a spinal cord stimulator. There's really the whole, you know, gamut of options. But the truth is you know, musculoskeletal pain is really hard to treat, spine pain is really hard to treat. And the pain mostly stems because our, our spines are just very weak, they have difficulty holding our heads up essentially, it's just like our head is too heavy. So you know, it's really hard to treat that kind of structural pain, um, but you know, patients have to kind of find the right doctor, usually a neurosurgeon and a pain management specialist working together Although again, it could be a whole team of people given all the different types of problems you can have in addition to the, the structural spine issues. Um, Sharon, is there anything I'm, I'm sort of missing as far as what patients have to kind of do to make sure they're that on was, the right path? That was wonderful,
1: Emily. Um, the, uh, the one thing to add is that Depending upon a person, say they have a congenital defect, a heart defect per se, they may have several surgeries and be monitored in that arena and have a cardiologist and someone who has issues with their kidneys. Um, it's the same idea. Every patient has a different team of doctors or type of list of different types of doctors that are on their team based on the issues that that individual patient is facing. So it's very, um, you know, it's a systemic condition that may affect several areas of the body. And so each person's medical team is very unique.
2: Thanks for that explanation, guys. Dr. Pietro, I'm a little curious now that we've heard from the patients on how this uh, syndrome affects them, what type of advice would you give to patients or maybe uh, newly diagnosed patients with clippofill syndrome?
4: Receiving any type of genetic diagnosis is certainly a life-changing event, and I think it's very important for patients to seek out help with really understanding the clinical uh, medical complications associated with their condition. Uh, seeing a geneticist, I think, is helpful, because he or she can really provide a nice overview of the condition and what are the possible complications that need to be looked at, and they also um, in conjunction with a genetic counselor, uh, I may say genetic counselors are extremely valuable, uh, resources of information uh, as well. Uh, they can uh, discuss how this happened, potential uh, genetic testing, which uh, may be relevant, uh, family history, uh, f- family planning concerns, and what the natural history of this condition is. Uh, as well, geneticists can really help find other providers that may be um, more expert in care than providers that they may be seeing, mainly because that the provider that the geneticist may know really may be an, an expert in clinical field just because of the fact that the geneticist is really tuned in to who is um, really learned in that specialty. Um, I also think it's important for families to really be um, more or less um, educated consumers, and certainly everyone will um, likely look on the internet to uh, find out more information, but one needs to really be judicious in the websites that they pick as well. So you certainly want to look at websites that, uh, for instance, Clipplefield Freedom, Um, websites that are curated and are maintained by by a good body of experts in the field so that the information that they're obtaining is really information that is accurate, up-to-date, and has been really screened and is medically appropriate for uh, patients and families because getting misinformation is really can be really harmful for uh, families as well. Certainly um, any diagnosis, is, is uh, it is something that one needs to pay special attention to, but also you know, there is, a, um, given that we have a diagnosis, we can also prevent a lot of complications too. So there also should be some optimism as well in terms of what can we expect or how can we best uh, treat uh, potential complications or monitor effectively what do we look for and what uh, things uh, do we need to watch out for.
2: So you mentioned that uh, this is a genetic condition. I'm a little curious to know if there's one gene, a group of genes that are uh, associated with KFS, or, and and if so, what do those, uh, you know, targets, are they, uh, you know, genes for collagen? Uh, do they affect the nucleus pulposus or the annulus fibrosis of the, the spine, spinal column itself? Can you talk a little bit more about that, Dr. Jim Pietro?
4: Sure. Well, one of the uh, cardinal principles of genetic conditions is that genetic conditions are clinically and uh, genetically, sounds a little redundant, but genetic conditions are clinically heterogeneous. Their genetic causes are uh, at the genetic level, um, heterogeneous as well. And some conditions can be caused by a combination of genetic and environmental factors uh, that sort of uh, interact with one another. So mm, at this point in time, we really don't know the majority of causes for genetic causes for klippel syndrome. Um, some of the genes uh, that have been linked to Klipplefield syndrome and have been published include genes like GDF3, GDF6. Those are growth-derived uh, uh, factors, and they, they act on uh, the vertebrae themselves, and, and they're, they're important during uh, development. Um, there are other genes uh, that uh, also act. I mean, these genes presumably in some way affect the somites. The somites are the structures that arise from the middle embryonic tissue or the mesoderm. And um, a lot of the genes associated, that are known to be associated with corpophil, affect the somites. Uh, there are uh, genes called uh, MEOX1 and Myox 2 that uh, are involved with somite uh, development. and. Uh, those have been found to be uh, active in some forms of klippel field syndrome. Um, there, are ho- there are a group of, of subdivisions of klippel field that are associated with um, genetic changes or mutations um, you know, in the MEOX1 and MEOX2 genes. These tend to be more isolated. Uh, with respect to uh, just the presence of, of uh, cervical fusion types of abnormalities, but no other birth defects, um, then there are other genes that are linked more with other types of birth defects, such as the eye, um, as well. And uh, so it's a it's a vastly a heterogeneous condition, but we don't know um, you know all of the genetic etiology. Collagen is important as well. Um, as far as I know, I don't believe collagen uh, has been published uh, to date. There are many different types of collagen, and they, they are, appear in you know, different parts of our uh, skeleton. Uh, and there, there some forms of collagen are associated with um, different uh, parts of uh, developing bones, etc. Um, but I don't believe that there have been any clippothelic uh, cases that have been linked to uh, known culprits at this point in time that have been um, that have been published, but there are certainly other. Um, we hypothesize that there are other you know genes out there that you know affect the somite. PAX one is another condition that's involved with somite formation um, as well, and that's been published. Um, but by and large, you know, we don't have an answer for a lot of uh, cases of clipal feel. We do um, know that there are other environmental um, effects that can be associated with clippal field. For instance, um, um, alcohol uh, can be associated with abnormalities and how cervical uh, vertebrae uh, are uh, developing and alcohol during pregnancy can uh, be associated with the cervical fusions that are seen in clippal field uh, syndrome.
2: That's probably a good segue into uh, my next question, which is, uh, so where is the research at? You know, what uh, studies have you seen or maybe that you're working on and, and can talk about uh, are out there to kind of push treatments and uh, therapies forward for patients with Couple field yeah. syndrome?
4: Well, I think, you know, a lot of the um, research is still, in, now we're in the era of whole genome sequencing and, uh, that's the ability to sequence letter by letter the um, coding elements, the DNA of uh, our genome, and to look for spelling changes in the uh, genome itself and understand what these spelling changes contribute to our development. And this is not um, trivial and uh, um, it's certainly not a uh, task that should be taken lightly, uh, it's not Whole genome is offered in, you know, some places, uh, clinically, uh, uh, there's a difference between the whole genome and whole exome. Whole genome, we're, we're sequencing everything, the whole kit and caboodle, basically. And then whole exome, we're sequencing the 1% of our genome that actually codes for a protein. So um, various groups, as included, are looking at um, uh, patients and uh, with all sorts of vertebral abnormalities, but trying to uh, understand changes that are seen. It's not just enough to identify changes in genes, but one has to then say, well, how does this change affect the protein, genes code for proteins, and proteins, certainly uh, uh, we would expect a protein that's relevant for quibble field has to do with uh, bones that make up the spine, and uh, it has to... Alter well, to the developmental process of how spine development occurs. So um, once we identify changes, we have to say, well, how does this change uh, then contribute to, the, to what we see as klippel syndrome? And sometimes we need to use animal models. Um, the zebrafish are a good animal model in the laboratory to look at the developing skeleton and say, OK, if we see this change and a human can we look at it in a zebrafish um, and then see if the spine has changed or not that's um, one good uh, example of how we can better analyze the changes that we can see there are other more expensive animal models too like the mouse uh, for instance but um, it's when we have a good understanding of what the natural history is and the gene itself that we can then into uh, uh, treatments, for instance, why are there, you know, some forms of Cripple-Feel with birth defects and others without birth defects? Um, And uh, um, how can we, if we know, uh, for instance, the genetic cause for Cripple-Feel syndrome, can we help with uh, pain management? Can we help with uh, prevention of of, uh, herniation, discs um, and and degenerative disc disease, which is a complication of Cripple Field syndrome. So um, understanding as much as we can about the basic biology, I think, can help uh, guide treatments uh, for this. And these studies uh, are not easy to do, and when we're looking at rare disorders, then it becomes uh, harder to do, but uh, uh, one needs multidisciplinary teams. and we need people to be in the same room, uh, talking to one another. So, um, for research to be uh, successful, I think we need you know the um, interplay of uh, a lot of the scientific, the medical community, and we also need interplay between the patients themselves and what you know, certainly they know best what they're suffering from and what.
2: I think that's a great segue into maybe getting uh, Sharon and Emily's take on why patients should participate in research. Uh, I know that uh, the clippel Syndrome Freedom Group has a disease-specific questionnaire with CORDS, and I'm uh, sure that uh, they would both love to talk about the the questionnaire itself and how that's going to go to drive research. So Sharon, uh, you first. Why do you think uh, patients with clippel Syndrome should participate in research?
1: Well, I, I have seen Patients and families have so many questions and so much frustration when trying to find care for themselves or their child. And then, you know, that's a cycle that we see is that frustration, but there comes a time where you have to take that next step and use kind of basically, in in some ways, use that frustration to say, well, what do we need to improve this? And the answer to that is research. And so you know, that is something that after you are searching yourself and then you're advocating a bit, and then you say, well, how are we gonna get out of this? How are we gonna make this better for our patients? And the answer is research. Um, and so, and so that's, that's a key point.
3: Uh, so just to add to what Sharon said about research, uh, the survey is so important for um, patients to fill out as soon as they can. It does take a little while to complete a lot of questions, but the reality is that there's so little information out there about propel syndrome that any additional entry into that registry means so much. Because if we can find a connection between even a handful of patients that, that matters. That means something. And um, because it's a rare disease, you know, we, we need it, whatever information we can get. And the, the registry is really wonderful because it covers everything from genetics and, and whether you've been tested, tested genetically, what gene you might have had, to what is your fusion, what associated conditions might you have, um, and then also what kind of treatments have you pursued, and what's worked and, and what hasn't worked. And that's especially important for people who are looking into these particularly invasive surgeries or, um, you know, really involved procedures like implanting a stimulator to help better guide their decision making, help better guide their treatment, and also hopefully inform research so that it can lead to um, better options for people with fail.
2: I think that's beautifully put, and. Uh brings us to the end of the podcast where I would like to make one final plug, and I I hope you would uh, support it. A call to action to those with clippofield syndrome uh, that have not completed their questionnaire, or maybe they already have, but need to update to enroll in CORDS or update their information in CORDS. And we will work with you to hopefully connect you to a research opportunity or share de-identified data with researchers to help drive uh, therapies and treatments for antiphospholipid syndrome. Sharon, Emily, Dr. Gianpietro, Pietro, thank you all very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Austin. Thank you. And
4: thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much for listening. The theme music for Chordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes's song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry, CORDS, visit us at sanfordresearch.org CORDS. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to CORDS at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford The content of cast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Cord's